This is Stacy Harbaugh and wait, Nate Weggehout with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The air quality advisory for Dane County has been extended until noon tomorrow. In response to smoke from Canadian wildfires, the city of Madison is issuing KN95 masks to the public at city libraries and public health offices. All city shelters are also following extreme weather procedures to allow for increased occupancy. City government will continue to provide regular updates and take additional steps as the situation evolves, according to the city's website. We'll have more on that air quality advisory later on in the show. The state Senate passed the proposed two-year budget yesterday after hours of debate. The budget passed by the Senate mirrors that put forward by the state's Joint Finance Committee, with no amendments added to the budget. Democrats did introduce several amendments to attempt to include everything from funding for the state's Office of School Safety to the UW system to expanding Medicaid. Republicans in the Senate shot down all of those amendments and the budget passed on a 20 to 13 vote with two Republicans voting against. And that's according to the Associated Press. The state assembly is currently debating the budget and are expected to pass it later this evening. It will then head to Governor Evers' desk for him to either sign, veto entirely, or most likely veto specific portions. And one thing not included in that budget is funding to continue the Child Care Counts program. And today, Governor Tony Evers submitted a proposal to tap into the final bit of federal funding for the program. The Child Care Counts program started during the pandemic to send federal dollars to child care centers across Wisconsin. Thus far, over 4,000 child care providers have claimed over $378 million for the program, mostly used to pay staff and continue operations. Without continued funding, over one-third of providers say they will have to either cut wages or be unable to offer any salary increases for their staff. While Democrats in both the Senate and Assembly introduced amendments to the budget to continue funding the program, Republicans in both houses shot down those amendments. Evers' proposal will now go to the state's Joint Finance Committee, which, if approved, would continue to send money to providers through January of next year. After that, the program will no longer operate in Wisconsin. And in the final bit of budget news, all 22 Republicans in the Senate voted against an amendment to repeal Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban last night. The party line vote came in response to an amendment Democrats attempted to add to the budget bill that the Senate passed today, the Capital Times reported. All 11 Democrats in the Senate voted in favor of the amendment. Republican lawmakers in the state capitol had avoided taking a stand on the abortion law since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the ruling that made access to abortion a constitutional right. But the Democrats' amendment forced the Republicans to take a public position on the law for the first time. And in non-budget news, extreme heat could tax the capacity of the Midwestern electrical grid, according to a report from an energy watchdog group. 
the North American Electric Reliability Corporation's annual summer reliability report states that the risk to the Midwestern energy grid is actually slightly lower than in 2022, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. But the report also states that retirement of coal-fired generators have reduced the system's capacity to respond in the event of extreme temperatures. The report says that two-thirds of North America is at risk of suffering energy shortfalls this summer during periods of peak demand. Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes is among six semifinalists for the position of Chicago Police Superintendent, a Chicago newspaper reports. Barnes is the only semifinalist from outside their department, according to the Chicago Sun-Times. However, Barnes spent a year as Director of Training and Development for the city's Civilian Office of Police Accountability. The chief, who was sworn in to lead the Madison Department on February 1, 2021, was out of the country today and could not be reached for comment, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The union representing workers at True Stage Financial Group, formerly known as CUNA Mutual Group, say that there's been no progress in negotiations after pausing the strike three weeks ago. Local 39 of the Office and Professional Employees International Union says in a press release tonight that the union stopped the strike after positive movement and negotiations, but that True Stage reverted to its old practices. True Stage maintains that they are bargaining in good faith. And now on to today's top stories. The air quality levels in Dane County continue to sit in the very unhealthy category today as wildfires in northern Canada continue to burn. But while wildfires happen every year, conditions this year are worse than normal, both for the number of fires and a weather system perfectly geared for sending that smoke into the area. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. The air quality advisory for Dane County has been extended until noon tomorrow as the air quality continues to sit in very unhealthy levels. That's as a record number of fires burn in Canada and unique weather systems push the smoke from those fires into the United States. There are around 480 wildfires currently burning in Canada, around 250 of those listed as out of control. Craig Sarnecki is an air program specialist with the State Department of Natural Resources. He says that Canada is currently experiencing a record-setting fire season. About 20 million acres worth of land is already burned up there. Uh, that's already That already surpasses their uh, record wildfire season of 1989. So we're at the end of June. We still have a couple months of summer to go, and they've already passed. You know, their, their record for a fire, fire season. Those fires are blazing throughout the northern portions of nearly every Canadian province, from British Columbia and Alberta to the west to Quebec and even Nova Scotia to the east. Ron Schneider is a cooperative fire specialist with the state DNR. He says that because the fires are happening in remote areas, they are having to pick and choose which fires they put out and which ones they simply let burn. So a lot of their fires they can't drive to. They use a lot of helicopters where they have to bring people in with helicopters or even boats. And they use a lot of what we call hose lays or laying kilometers of hose to many of these fires from ponds, from lakes 
to try to suppress the fires. Because of the number of fires, Canadian officials have brought in firefighters from other countries, including Mexico, Italy, and Australia. But Schneider says, unfortunately, Wisconsin can't be of much help. But right now we are, with our drought in Wisconsin, um, we're pretty much holding back the majority of our staff here in Wisconsin to, uh, to be available for fires that we could have here due to the severe drought. While Canada has a fire season every year, usually that smoke doesn't end up in the Midwest. Schneider says that on top of just the number of fires, wind patterns are sending the smoke to places it usually doesn't affect. It rarely becomes newsworthy because we don't have the smoke impacting the Midwest, but this year the weather pattern set up so that we had a lot of, a lot of northerly flow from the air masses from Canada down into the Midwest. So we're, we're just seeing a lot more smoke this year. And while the fires could rage throughout the rest of the summer and smoke may continue to drift into the Midwest, a unique weather system is making the current air quality conditions even worse. Smoke from those wildfires continue to sit on top of Wisconsin thanks to what's known as an omega block weather system. That's when a high pressure system is sandwiched by multiple nearby low pressure systems, essentially holding the air in place and not allowing the smoke to move away and dissipate. But Craig Zarnecki says that that block may soon break up and the winds may cooperate enough to move the smoke out of the area. Tomorrow, we're expecting some statewide westerly winds, which should really start to see some good improvements here um, across most of the state. Um, so those westerly winds will kind of blow this east and out of our area tomorrow. So the end is in sight, we, we're hoping. <laughs> While the entire state is still under the air quality advisory, those westerly winds have already begun to have an impact. Air quality is beginning to improve in western Wisconsin, and in Eau Claire, the air quality dropped to moderate levels earlier this afternoon. Here in Madison, however, it is important to continue to protect yourself from that smoke. While regular cloth masks are not effective at blocking smoke particles, a KN95 should be able to help you breathe healthy air. Still, everyone should continue to avoid prolonged time outside, and people with heart or lung disease and older adults should limit their time outdoors as much as possible. Meanwhile, the city of Madison is working to distribute masks to whoever needs them. KN95 masks are being distributed at Madison libraries as well as at the city-county health department offices. Masks are also being handed out at homeless shelters throughout the city. The county has also set up clean air respite centers throughout Madison for folks to get out of the smoke. There are currently four respite centers in operation, with the city still working to set up another four at faith-based facilities throughout Dane County. The public libraries are also welcoming members of the public to seek relief from the outdoors. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy-Hout. Data show that the best climate mitigating effect comes from a mosaic of landscape types with more greenery producing greater benefits. A Wisconsin farm is a part of the movement to create more welcoming environments for pollinators. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. To protect certain species from the impacts of climate change, researchers are looking at the role farms might play in enhancing biodiversity. A Wisconsin farm has taken the mission to heart by restoring native prairies alongside the food it grows. In the southern half of the state, 
Deirdre Birmingham and her husband have operated a cider tree farm for two decades. But it's not just apples they're producing. Creating a habitat for pollinators is another priority, with a variety of prairie plants and shrubs running through sections of the orchard. Birmingham says not only does it provide an ecological boost, but it also can help with profits, pointing to an example from last year. There's also honeybees kept on farms in the area, and we had a sudden blossom after a long, cool spring, a sudden 90 degrees hit, and things fast-forwarded with apples just blossoming fast and furiously. Because the farm is a multifaceted landscape of forest and crop trees and prairie, it's seen as relatively buffered from climate change. Experts say as extreme heat and drought wither plants, obliterate pollen, and dry up water sources, agricultural settings like these could help a lot more species survive. The UN Environment Program has found that food and agriculture currently drive 70% of species loss. But there's hope farms like Birmingham's will help reverse the damage. We're a very diverse topography, and we have neighbors that are doing similarly on their land, and that's important to get these contiguous pieces of land. That doesn't mean diverse farming landscapes are immune to the stresses of extreme weather. Ecologists say plants will eventually succumb to persistent scorch and lack of water, but they agree these efforts can still buy vulnerable species more time. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Republican legislatures, legislators have been calling for the resignation of Megan Wolf for years, particularly in the wake of the 2020 presidential election. And Wolf reaches the end of her term as administrator of the Wisconsin Election Commission's next month. Whether or not to keep her on has been the subject of a tense political battle. For more, WORT reporter Faye Parks sat down with Ann Jacobs earlier today. Jacobs is one of the three Democrats on the six-member technically bipartisan, commission. The Wisconsin Elections Commission is responsible for the state's election process, a resource for local clerks and an overseer of compliance with state and federal law. Megan Wolf, as WEC Administrator, is Wisconsin's top election official. Wolf's term officially comes to an end on July 1st. Whether or not she can remain in her job is the subject of partisan wrangling this week. Here to unpack the details is Ann Jacobs, a Democratic commissioner on the WEC. Anne, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Happy to be here. Before we get into this week's news, can you just give us a little background on what the Wisconsin Elections Commission does and uh, how it's structured? Sure. The Wisconsin Elections Commission is made up of six commissioners, uh, three from each of the two major parties. One commissioner is appointed by the Republican leadership, uh, in the Senate, one is appointed by the Republican leadership in the Assembly, and one is a clerk nominated by the Republican leadership to the governor who then selects the clerk member. The same is true for the Democrats, one appointed by um, Senate leadership, one by Assembly leadership, and then a clerk member selected from that leadership and um, selected by the governor. The Elections Commission is the policy-making governing body of the State Elections Commission. So we set policy, we set directives, and those policy and directives are then implemented by the Wisconsin Election Commission staff, including the Elections Commission administrator. Unlike other states, Wisconsin's elections are not governed by the Secretary of State. They are instead governed by the Wisconsin Election Commission's administrator, 
She serves as the chief election official for the state of Wisconsin. The administrator is um, appointed by the commission itself, appointed to a uh, appointed by the commission, and then that appointment is submitted to the Senate for their advice and consent. Once so approved, they serve for a four-year term. So Wolf has been subject to an intense amount of criticism by Republicans. Uh, why is that? What do they claim? She has been subjected to an intense amount of criticism, largely premised upon conspiracy theories and other misunderstandings of election law. Um, and as for why that is, I, I really don't fully understand it, but the, they have embraced her as sort of an election boogeyman upon whom they can place the blame for having lost recent major elections in the state of Wisconsin. That brings us to the meeting that took place on Tuesday um, when the commission deadlocked on a vote to reappoint her. Would you mind just walking us through the broad themes of what happened in that meeting? Sure. That meeting was uh, brought by the chair with the premise being that it was for the appointment of Administrator Wolf to another four-year term. Where the uh, dispute arose is that Wisconsin's Election Commission has some very specific language on when a new administrator can be appointed. And that language reads, if a vacancy occurs, then the commission shall appoint a new administrator. Well, under Wisconsin law, there's a definition of vacancy. And basically, vacancy is along the lines of death, resignation, moving out of state, things like that. And so the concern that the Democratic commission members had was there's no vacancy. There's nothing for us to vote on. It is a condition precedent. There must be a vacancy before there's anything to vote on. The Republican members wanted to vote um, to approve Administrator Wolf for another four-year term and felt they had the right to do that. That is something I disagree with. So there were three votes to uh, reappoint Administrator Wolf and three votes abstaining from that vote, indicating there was not jurisdiction for us to appoint anyone. You add into that the recent court case involving Frederick Prane, where the Wisconsin Supreme Court basically took that same position and said, vacancy is a defined term, and if you don't have a vacancy, then there's nothing to appoint someone to. And what the court also said was, then the end of a term of office does not create a vacancy, unless you're an elected official, which Administrator Wolf is not. And so they become a holdover, and they can hold over in that position as long as they wish. And so that's the second part of the equation that comes into play. So now I'm wondering, we see that the Republican-led Senate is now intervening. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, this was a really surprising action by them because it's completely contrary to all of the written laws governing the Elections Commission. Um, basically, what the uh, Senate Republicans have decided to do is pretend the statutes don't exist and pretend that a vote of three commissioners is sufficient to appoint a new administrator or the same administrator in this case. They're going to pretend that was a nomination to do so. And once they have that pretend nomination, they're going to send it to committee where they promise to reject it. And somehow they think that all of that complies with the law, which it does not. 
What do you anticipate comes next? Do you think this will end up in the courts? I have no idea what's going to happen next. I, I, I hope that people start asking the Republican legislature why it is they think the laws don't apply to them, why they're prepared to essentially try to cheat the system in order to prevent Megan Wolf from being the administrator. It's really sort of a bizarre fixation with her, particularly when you consider that she acts at the direction and instruction of the commission itself. We're the ones who set policy. We're the ones who issue the directives. She's the person who implements them. So I hope that the uh, Republican legislature is held to account for this um, intentional disregard of the various statutes involved. And then someone asks them why they think they don't have to follow the law and cheat like this. It's, it's very unfortunate. We know that um, the Walker administration actually established the WEC. Um, how have you seen the commission's relationship with the state GOP evolve since then? In 2016, there were absolutely no complaints from the Republican legislature in any way, shape, or form as to how that election was conducted because their guy won. And then in 2020, leading up to the election, there were not complaints, or not very many. And then after 2020, when President Biden won, suddenly there's a deluge of conspiracy theories and anger and accusations and the like. So realistically, what appears to have happened is they're trying to get rid of the rest because they lost the game. And so that's really the only thing that's changed over that time period. Anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Your listeners should go to elections.wi.gov and take a look at some of our FAQs on the conspiracy theories around um, elections and hopefully not subscribe to any of them, whether you're on the left or the right, Conspiracy theories are detrimental to our democracy. And to the extent those conspiracy theories are being used to attack Megan Wolf or the commission itself, really encourage people to um, use the resources, deal with facts, not fiction. And hopefully we can get this moving along so that we have a safe, fair, and accurate election in 2024. That was Ann Jacobs, a Democratic commissioner with the bipartisan WEC, giving her perspective on Administrator Megan Wolf's approval process. Wolf's term is scheduled to end July 1st, but the future of her position and who might fill it is still uncertain. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Anne. You're very welcome. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. This week on Out of the Box, host D-Star sat down with Big Brothers, Big Sisters employees, Tracy Anderson and Bethany Ordaz, about the importance and fulfillment of mentorship and their upcoming gala. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with 
Bethany Ordaz. Tracy Anderson. Tracy, welcome back. Thank you. Bethany, hello for the first time. Hello for the first time. <laughs> so Bethany, for the people that don't know you, can you give us a little bit about yourself? My name's Bethany. I work at Big Brothers Big Sisters. I am our community engagement and events manager. I've been here for six and a half years and I get to do all the fun stuff like planning our fun events and raising money and supporting this great program. That's awesome. How did you get into this type of work? I had some friends that that were bigs, a big couple. And their little brother was just sort of integrated into our lives as he was just around all the time. He used to hang out with us. I remember going to a Brewers game once, even just like a 4th of July party, just Sean, little brother Sean, he was just there. He was part of the group. They just did a great job with him and I thought it was awesome. And so I worked in politics for a long time and decided it was time for a career change. I saw the opening at Big Brothers Music Sisters and I thought, what a great program. I want to get involved and I started working here and it's the best. And so I'm never leaving. <laughs> so Tracy, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. <laughs> Thank you. I that because I know you love to laugh. I do. <laughs> yeah, you remember from the last time. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. So how has things been going? Tell us a little bit about what has been going on um, since the last time you've been on. It's almost going to be a year for me. So it's been 10 months I've been with the organization. And then when I was on with you before, Mark Richardson joined us and we you know, we're really talking about our need for bigs, especially bigs of color and the wait list. And that's really been my role since that last episode and just continuing on, just continuing to be the community outreach and volunteer manager. So a lot of you have probably seen me out in the community at different events or galas and, and all kinds of things, just trying to spread the word. Yes, that is the need, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we need more bigs of color. There's only 12 out of 100 and something bigs. Thank you to the 12. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, 12. Thank you, 12. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, thank yeah. you, 12. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate you. Mm -hmm. We're not going to put anybody on the spot, but thank you, 12. Um, now, moving forward, the next thing that is on our agenda uh, for the year is... The gala. Our gala. Yeah. The gala. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seemed like you guys kind of like forgot. <laughs> I don't no, forget. We didn't. <laughs> We've been very busy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So what is this gala about? So our gala is our largest fundraiser every year, both in terms of participation as well as the dollars we raise for our program. Our program is entirely free to the kids and the families that we serve. So all the funds raised at our gala and our other fundraising events throughout the year goes directly back into the program. So that's great. You know, it doesn't cost a kid anything to sign up. It doesn't cost the parent anything. So we are here to support that. Uh, we have wonderful um, sponsors that support this event every year. Our presenting sponsor is Mad City Windows. They've been awesome. This is their fifth year sponsoring this event. And it's fun. It's like the most fun event for our attendees. It's a little stressful for the staff, I'll say, but it's awesome. It's a great night uh, where we celebrate mentoring in our community. We formally award our bigs of the year, which is great. It's hard to say that one big is better than another big, but it is nice to sort of zero in on some stories of these great mentors that we have and honor them. So we will be honoring our bigs of the year, you know, and then we have a great auction. We have an enormous silent auction. We have a live auction. We have raffles. There's something for everyone. And it's a nice night just to be out in the summer, find friends, you know, 
people from organizations or, or your coworkers and come and enjoy a night um, where we get to tell great stories and share the great things that are going on here, but also to also express the need that we still have, the need for more mentors to help move these kids off the wait list. And yeah, it's a great night. And I'm very excited that both of you are going to be involved <laughs> this year. After the last podcast, I said, oh, wouldn't it be great if they were just, you know, maybe in charge up on the stage? So I did ask Dee and Tracy to host and they've agreed this year. So I'm very excited for you guys to be our, our host for this year's event. Tell us where this gala will be. It's Friday, July 28th. It's at the Monona Terrace. Friday night downtown. What more fun could there be? It starts at, we'll start at 530. Some cocktails, some games, and then our program and dinner will be around seven. And we have a fun guest speaker also joining us. Judge Everett Mitchell is going to be there and he's a former big as well in our program. And I just seen him at Juneteenth. Yeah, he's great. He spoke at an event we had several years ago to our matches and he just shares an incredible story of mentoring of the mentors in his life. We're excited to have him this year as well. And dancing too. Yes. Got a DJ. And at the end of the night, DJ Payne One is going to be with us. Yeah. He's also a longtime supporter of the program. We were going to work with him in 2020, but you know, then COVID changed everything. So um, we're glad that we have the opportunity to have him participate this year. I wanted to know, how did the pandemic affect the relationships between the bigs and the littles? The hardest part was that we weren't able to make new matches. It was hard for a big and a little to establish relationship virtually, but it did happen. We had we did have some matches that were okay. People pivoted just like everybody in this country. We had to pivot and see what we could do with that disconnection. It was hard. It was hard on people but I know the bigs sort of worked overtime to make it happen. I'd say I think there was a lot more video game playing. People were online playing video games with their littles or FaceTime, text messaging. Kids probably had a little bit more access to electronics than they would have normally had. A lot of times because they were doing virtual school too, we had a number of bigs like helping out do with virtual school with the littles, just more like distance type activities. Um, we had several kits that we put together. We had like a pizza making kits. Uh, we had some craft kits so the bigs could pick them up put one half of the kit with with the little and then the big would take the other half home and they could go on zoom and they could still make pizza together just in their own houses so we did try a number of things like that and it worked out pretty well and i know that you know sometimes the bigs would maybe drop off you know groceries or things like that to the littles family you know or just stay out by their car and the kid would be out on the porch and sort of wave or talk at a distance but they were you know they stayed connected and stayed safe and it worked out, I think, better than we thought it would. But those were a hard couple of years because we weren't able to make a lot of new matches. It was it was hard for kids just having to wait even longer, just being in this super stressful time. You know, we all were stressed out, but I think it was really hard for kids when every, you know, couldn't see friends, couldn't go to school, couldn't see their big. I think that was hard. The the bigs did, did a great job and, and we tried to do as best we could, but I think it was hard on the kids. First and foremost, the gala is a fundraiser. What would you say is the biggest need for the littles right now? More than anything, I have opportunities for them, events for them to go to, um, things for them to do so that they are staying engaged, you know, reaching their potential. We we just wrapped up a leadership camp that we did with the Madison Police Department. I think that was great. Um, and we just try to give them things that they wouldn't normally have access to. 
That was D Star, host of the Oddity Box podcast, talking with Tracy Anderson and Bethany Ordaz with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Now, that was just a portion of their full conversation, which you can find online wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The House Always Wins, carpentry instructors and carpenters themselves, John and Allie, explain how you can learn carpentry at Madison College. I call it housework, because it's light work. What you, what you gonna do? I'm going to throw shapes, filling the base to my feet. Hello, I'm John. And I'm Allie, and welcome to The House Always Wins, a place where you can learn cool stuff about your house. As many of you listeners may know, you and I, Allie, teach home building and remodeling at Madison College on Madison's lovely north side. With the uh, new school year starting in late August, it might be fun to talk about the construction remodeling program and what it has to offer for someone who is considering a career in construction or for someone who just wants to be able to work on their own home. Yeah, you can really go in a lot of directions with this education. So let me describe the program, which is really three overlapping programs. For years, we've been offering a 32-credit technical diploma in construction and remodeling. That diploma can be completed in one academic year if you're able to attend classes all day, Monday through Friday. Right. And about half to two-thirds of each school day is spent actually learning how to build and practicing those skills. Some people may be like, oh, you're going to college. It's just going to sit in the classroom. And yes, we will learn some things in the classroom, but we also teach other ways. So most of us learn best when we get information in multiple ways. So we'll start out by talking about a concept in the classroom, making sure people understand. And then we'll go out into the shop and we as the teachers will then demonstrate them, showing them the proper way to do things. And then we give the students opportunities to figure out and practice those skills on their own and apply them to what they have learned hands-on and in real world. Yeah, like students might begin by learning a carpentry skill or concept. Like, for example, um, how to space wall studs 16 inches on center, as we say. And they'll practice that skill through some small individual projects. But pretty soon, they're working in teams. First, they're building garden sheds where the wall studs are 16 inches on center. And then they're building a home. But now we're going to put the wall studs 24 inches on center. What? Yeah. So they take what they understand about 16 inches on center and then apply it to a different situations. So not to nerd out too hard, although I could. <laughs> this is how we grow our brains, neural networks. This oh. is learning and practice. Oh, my goodness. And God knows my neural networks need all the help they can get. That's for sure. So... If you ever find yourself driving down Packers Avenue on Madison, you've probably seen the small houses that the students built. Those houses are nice, uh, built using quality materials and with a focus on energy efficiency, green building materials and methods, and implementing good building science principles. And they're just really cool, tiny homes. And as you can tell, we're pretty proud of them. Yeah, and that's only part of the school day. The other classes on a student's schedule, they sort of form what I'd call the parentheses around uh. their hands-on carpentry. So on the front end are classes that help students master the, the math that carpenters use and train them how to read building plans and even draw them. We teach people how to use tools from the basics of swinging a hammer to using power saws of all varieties to safely setting up ladders and scaffolding. On the back end, students learn about the business of construction, how to estimate the materials you might need, how long the project will take. One of the appeals of carpentry for some people is that you can be your own boss. Uh, you could, you know, take our program, go to work for someone for a while, and then you may decide to 
give in to that entrepreneurial uh, pull and go start your own company. But a business needs to make money, which is why estimating accurately is so important. Oh, yes, it is. Definitely was my uh, my downfall in business. Students can also learn uh, the building science or the why of how we build our homes. I teach that class and, you know, I'll tell you, there's the old adage of, of they don't build them like they used to. And frankly, that is a good thing. Oh, no doubt. We build so much better than they used to. We want our students to go out into the world and, and bring best building science to to their projects. Absolutely. So, you know, you go to work for a, you, you walk off the street and go to work for a contractor, you're going to get thrown into the mix right away. And what you do when you come through us is we teach you how, but we also teach you the why. And that's an important class. Yeah. The one year program really gives people a broad view of carpentry and the construction industry. Um, it's a great opportunity and it costs around $7,000 all in which uh, you can lessen. We There's a lot of scholarship opportunities through the program, through the college, and through the construction industry itself. Right. $7,000, it's it's not nothing. And going to school full-time may not be realistic for some people who may have work or family obligations, though. Yeah, and that's totally real. And some students complete the one-year technical diploma, but they do it over two years. Right. Others take advantage of our embedded technical diplomas, and with the demand uh, for carpenters at an all-time high. The fact is, you know, if you're a go-getter, you can probably talk your way onto a construction job as a laborer, maybe a carpenter's helper with no prior skills. Right, though that will probably be easier for a white male to do than someone who isn't a traditional building trades person, right? That is a fact. So on the other hand, if you complete either, we have a five credit, it's called Construction Essentials Diploma, or we have a 15 credit Carpentry Techniques Diploma, you will know how to use tools, work safely, read plans. And with that Carpentry Techniques, that 15 credit diploma, you're going to be able to frame homes and finish their exteriors. You will have some marketable skills. You're ready to work in construction and you have the diploma that proves that to a potential employer. Personally, I would have benefited from a program like that 30 years ago because I am one of those people who talked my way onto a job, barely able to recognize the business end of a hammer. Oh, same here. I wish I'd have had the opportunity. You know what? I think I finally figured out my hammer, though. It, it took a while, but I think I got it. Anyway, the cool thing about the embedded diploma is that every one of these classes is part of the 32 credit construction remodeling diploma. So maybe you were in one of the embedded diplomas, you worked for a few years, and you can come back and finish the full 32 credit diploma. Yeah. What's more, you can actually transfer most of the credits from that 32 credit diploma towards a bachelor's degree in construction management at UW Platteville. Oh my God. And a construction manager with actual hands-on skills in an understanding how things are built, that is the dream employee for most construction companies. And while we're at it, let's also talk about pay and opportunity in the trades. Starting wages for our graduates can be as high as $25 an hour or sometimes even more. The trades are a great way to make a good living. It's like a little known secret out there that parents and other people just don't realize. I mean, face it, have you ever seen a poor plumber or a poor electrician? No, I have not. I, not that I've noticed, honestly. And there is a lot of directions you can go. And the work can be often different and interesting. And honestly, it's easy to start your own company after some time. If you have that entrepreneurial bent, there's so many opportunities in the trades. It's really, it's really quite, quite exciting. 
Yeah. And I guess one of the last points I'd like to make is that you can earn that construction essentials diploma taking classes in the evenings. And I know that's critical for some people. You know, as a program, uh, I think you'd agree that we've really wanted to open this door for anybody who wants to walk through it. Absolutely. The door is open. It doesn't matter who you are. Come on by. We will teach you how to build. So if, if someone wants to join us this fall, how would they get started? Well, they can go on to the interwebs there and go to madisoncollege.edu and search for construction and remodeling. There you'll see lots more details about the program, how to apply, and you'll find contact info if you'd like to have a conversation with one of us or get a tour of what we do. Thanks a lot. And if you didn't catch that, or if you have any other questions about carpentry, construction, or home improvement, you can send us an email here at thehousealwayswins.com at wortfm.org. Thanks much. Happy building. Yeah, thanks for listening. And remember to hit the nail with that the heavy end of the hammer. I finally figured that out. I'm with those sheets, filling the base to my feet hurt. I call it housework. Because it's light work. Physical maps are disappearing in the 21st century. For some of us, finding our destination is as simple as dictating the address to your phone. And while she has a terrible sense of direction, feature contributor Jennifer Fields isn't in any hurry to give up her folding maps. And neither is the Wisconsin Historical Society, especially when it comes to the Sanborn maps. First created by the Sanborn Company 100 years ago, the detailed maps of cities and towns were created for companies selling fire insurance. In this week's episode, Archival Edition of Radio Chipstone, Fields and Lee Grady, senior reference archivist at the State Historical Society, take a closer look at a Sanborn map of early Madison. So let's say you came in and you said, I live at um, 117 South Webster Street and I want to get insurance for my house or my apartment, whatever it is. So they pull out the 1885 map, or their most current map. They did these every five to ten years or so. They look around. What's, what else is going on around your neighborhood here? What other kinds of structures? Here on this map, you see lots of buildings that are in blue. That means they are stone. They're made out of stone or masonry. You see lots of buildings that are pink, which means they're made out of brick. And then you see some yellow, which means wood frame. Just a few doors down from you is a cigar factory. There's a liquor store just across the way from you here. There's a, a gunsmith right here. This, this is, in, this, by the way, we're looking at, at South Webster, near the corner of South Webster and King Street in Madison, just a block off the Capitol Square in 1885. A block off the Capitol Square, yes. you have a liquor store, a gun shop, and a cigar factory. And a cigar factory. Yeah, all on the same on the same block here. Yeah. Let's say an extreme example. You come in and you have a wood frame house, and he, and they look at the map and they say, oh, you know, there's a blast furnace operation right across the street. You're gonna have to pay a lot for insurance, right? I mean, you're at a huge risk. These maps are so detailed. Can you also look at them and see how the neighborhood changes over the years and and what. Did the roller rink go away and it's now something else? Yeah. Is the livery, well, yeah. the livery could be a gas station now for all That's we correct. know. That's correct. And then also, yeah, what kinds, what, what's the character of the neighborhood? How are things changing? And you pointed out the livery. There's also a harness, couple of harness shops. There's a harness shop right here. Uh, blacksmith shops, harness shops. Those things you'll see, those things will change. So we, I, what I've pulled out here are pages from the same block. Here's the same street, same section um, in 1892. 
Yeah, we are seven years, only seven years later, not a lot of time, but there are already some some changes here. The barbershops become a parlor, and mm. now the livery is like carriages and then livery on there. Mm-hmm. The liquor store is still liquor, although this says wholesale liquor now. Oh, it has a little bottling thing, it looks like, in behind it. Oh, is yeah, bottling? bottling. Yeah, so I guess they are actually, that's why it's wholesale. I guess they're getting liquor and they're bottling it. Pretty much everything you see here is on this map, and it will describe, you know, here's a corset, a store that's selling corsets. Here's some offices. Here's a bookstore. Uh, here's a picture framing store, a drug store. The roller skating rink is identified as being right on the corner. That's probably this area over here, over this building with the flag coming off of it. It's probably the roller skating rink that you pointed out on the map. You know what I just thought about looking at this map that I would not have thought about looking at a map on my phone? Okay, here you've got cigars and guns and livery stables yes. and whiskey bottling and such. And here you've got like pretty little ladies thing. <laughs> you know, you've got the cobbler and the corset maker and the offices and the roller skating rinks. So you can dump the kids off there, get your shopping done while your husband or your significant others over here getting bombed out and smoking and buying guns. I suppose that's, that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, if we move forward here in time to 1902, still another, another, uh, wow, eight big years. chunks missing. No, the roller skating rink is gone. gone. Yeah, it was already gone and looks like in 1892. But yeah, what happened to that? It was made out of wood, so you wonder whether uh, the thing went down. Now, you could look in a newspaper to see if there was anything that happened. Maybe they just tore it down or maybe there was a fire there. Maybe it's maybe it burned down. Because look at all the brick buildings are still there. That was the one big wooden structure mm -hmm. that was there in 1885. And let's see. There's, oh, there's a drugstore now, but they're still smoking cigars. They're still yeah. bottling liquor. Now, what used to be the... Oh, yeah, oh the gun shop's gone. There's a furrier. You're right. Amusement hall. Now, it says here, you notice it says from plans. Yes. So that means it was a proposed at this point. When this map was done in 1902, they were planning to do that building. So they put it in there as if it was already there. They put it in there based on the, the plans that they were looking at. So we can go ahead to, uh, let's see what the next one is. 19, I think this is 1908. Amusement hall is at 207 East Main. Oh, it didn't happen. So it's well, it says casino hall. Nice. So it is casino. <laughs> they called it amusements then, but now it's more specific. So it's it's a casino hall. Interesting, huh? So gambling. So you can gamble. But it also looks like it was broken up into like there's other things going yeah, on. Yeah. What too. is going on there? I guess. Oh, look at that gasoline engine. So there's a gasoline engine in this in the machine shop. Again, they're starting to use gasoline engines to sort of power things. You know, it's before, maybe it's right around the time things are getting wired, but they'll have, they have their own gasoline engine in the machine shop. That's going to add a significant fire risk for the neighbors there. So. Now, at some point, they decided it's too expensive for us to issue a whole new set of maps every five years, especially for a city the size of Madison, which keeps growing really quickly. So what they did was they took this, this is a 1908 map. They took the same 1908 map and then they just started pasting in changes. You'll see here on the map, little pieces of paper where they'd actually glue them over. And sometimes they've been glued over several times. The insurance agents weren't keeping these things so that we could you know, have fun with them uh, 30, 50 years later, 100 years later, or figure out what the history of the town was. They had a purpose, you know, they, this was for fire insurance. So it had to be up to date, right? They didn't really care if they were erasing some record. Yeah, that we we would sign curse painting, them for later. No more cigar shop, no more whiskey. It's sign but painting. Auto spring repair, auto parking. Uh, you know, I don't see any livery or blacksmith shops here anymore. Um, it, it's all it's all about cars. You know, there's a filling station right here. 
state auto license department. So auto licenses, you know, licensing vehicles. How much real estate is is here is now taken up by by managing our automobiles, you know, insuring our automobiles, licensing them, parking them, filling them with gas, getting them repaired. None of that stuff was here 30 years earlier. So none of it, you know, that's how fast things change too. You know, I know in my lifetime and in, in being here on campus since I was a student here, all the new buildings and some of the other buildings that have been torn down. And you think about how quickly that changes. And if you go back to 18, you know, the 1880s, for example, how many different places and buildings have come and gone? You know, you think you often think of a city or a part, a place you live as having some sort of permanence or, you know, you, you feel like you, you know the city, but the city has been many different things and the character of these neighborhoods has changed over time many, many different times. And somebody who lived here 100 years ago might have a much different idea of South Webster Street than we do today, obviously, you know, di- wholly different character and different things going on there. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that does it for our show. Thanks for tuning in to the WORT Live Local News at 6. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors D-Star, John Stephanie, and Allie Berenny, as well as Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Miss Jolly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to subscribe to the WORT local news wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is a perpetual notion machine. Thanks for listening, and good night.